Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kayan Isaacson. This week, Suzanne Morse joins me for 321 Go. Then we have an interview with Noelle Lambert and Famita Ayambeku from the Born to Run Foundation. And in two minutes with Tom, Tom's giving us some of his book picks. First up, 321 Go. Welcome to 321 Go. I'm Suzanne Morse, filling in for Cosmo Macero, and I'm here with my colleague, Kyan Isaacson, the voice of OA on Air. Welcome, Kyan. <laughs> Good to be here. Always a pleasure. So, Kyan, uh, you're actually out in California. I am. Um, for those of us here in Massachusetts, we're of course seeing these apocalyptic pictures of orange skies and acres, you know, burning from these wildfires. I know you're in Southern California, uh, which is not where the images of the orange skies are coming from, but what is it like out there with the wildfires? Uh, so yes, I'm in San Diego, um, but my husband still goes uh, back and forth to work up in Napa, uh, Northern California for a few days. So he, it's interesting to hear stories from him. Um, you know, for example, earlier this week, you talk about just the convergence of so many catastrophic things. Um, there was a heat wave. You know, I think it was 107 degrees during the day. There were power outages due to the heat wave. Uh, but then the air quality was also so bad that you couldn't really be outside breathing air. So you have this really not to say perfect but perfect storm of just really terrible circumstances where people don't have the power to keep you know their air conditioning on and then maybe you want to go outside to get some sort of fresh air because it gets stagnant inside but you can't because then you go outside and the air quality is worse it is um, incredibly difficult circumstances for for people there and I'm very glad that uh, I'm currently in Southern California and yeah. no longer in Northern. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I know that there was some concern, and rightly so, there is still com some concern because we're still in hurricane season, you know, here on the East Coast and up and down the Eastern Seaboard, that how would we manage um, a huge disaster like a hurricane or a major storm during this pandemic? Because obviously it creates a lot of uh, challenges for public health officials and public safety officials, but I mean that's the same the case for uh, people in California with this extreme heat wave and these incredible wildfires. So how are public health and safety officials managing it? Do you know? Um, you know it comes. So another problem with that comes from what happens when it's really hot. Where do people want to go? People right. want to fly to the beach. Yeah. Um, so you know. We are very close to the beach here. They have been incredibly crowded. Um, we actually have been like purposely avoiding them on weekends, but we now have people stationed at our um, beach parking lots and entrances, handing out masks if you're not already wearing them, really doing their best to uh, push the social distance as much as you can. But it's hard because the people's first reaction is to get outside. Um, if they, you know, if they've been stuck inside and now it's maybe you're stuck inside, but rolling power outages to control the grid mean that you might not even be able to make your inside as comfortable as you might. While the majority of kids here too are now doing remote school. So it is, 
you know, it feels a little bit when you open the paper some days here, like what else, how much else are we supposed to handle? Um, but so far, so good-ish, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like that's tough to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is interesting. You know, for me, I work with a number of different environmental clients, and obviously, for me, all of this just points to uh, the reality of climate change. And I think um, what Absolutely. it shows is that reality is here, right? This isn't about if this is going to happen. It's now when, what are we doing to mitigate that? And, you know, can we start putting some policies in place to actually address it um, rather than letting people, I mean, in a pandemic, the notion that um, people can't go outside because the air quality is poor and oh by the way the the woods around them are burning is pretty horrifying thought it is it is um and you realize that for for people who are not in circumstances where they have access to air conditioning and access to options um their circumstances are that much more dire uh, and it is Sorry, Logan just interrupted. Um, it is, uh, it's pretty telling that we have not managed to figure out how do we better serve our underserved and more vulnerable populations. And when there is not one global quote unquote catastrophe, um, but multiple things coming into a convergence, it's these populations that we really do need to be looking and saying, what are we doing? Yeah. Um, it, the this is a perfect storm of people are supposed to be stuck at home in order to avoid public but if your power is going out and you don't have access to anywhere else and then you you know maybe now you don't have internet and your kids are trying to go to school um, if you're in an underserved population this is hitting you even harder as I I'm certainly not being affected the way thousands and thousands yeah. of other families would be of course so there was a lot of chatter, I think, over the weekend um, around the idea that at least one of the wildfires, and I think it's worth stressing, it's only one of the wildfires, was started because uh, someone used a pyrotechnic at a gender reveal party. Mm -hmm. um, I do think it is also worth noting that most gender reveal parties don't use incendiary devices. Um, I use balloons, <laughs> for the record, like normal people. Seven years now. Uh, no, but it's an important distinction, and it's actually for people who are not who have never lived in an area where there are um, active wildfires on a regular basis. It is important to stress there are multiple wildfires taking over this <laughs> portion, the, a region of the state, um, and they are varying in size and varying in scope. But they are uh, some of them converge on each other. Many of them are scattered. Um, but there are, are a high number, and that they get all get treated differently based on the circumstances surrounding the individual fire. Well, Cayenne, stay safe out there in California. I will continue to stay far away from the wildfires. So, Cayenne, um, this week, GBH and WBUR announced a new joint partnership uh, podcast um, called Consider This. 
And it's actually also in partnership with the whole NPR. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you think about it. So I love that it's a, it's a new model. It's going to take global and national issues, but then there will also be local issue, issues based on the affiliate. Um, and it's never been done before. So bravo there. And um, I'm excited to hear it. Obviously, I haven't heard it yet. But it's also just another indication of how far podcasting has come. Yeah. Um, yeah. So many. We, we can be a, provide testimony to. Yeah. You know, trendsetters is what we were. No. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's the power of audio content and podcasting. I think particularly as the current environment continues to unravel, it's a way to keep people connected and to connect with audiences um, in new and different ways. People might not be listening to talk radio as much because they're not in their cars. Um, and podcasts are a way to continue reaching those listeners in a different format and on their own terms and on their own schedule. There's certainly more flexibility with podcasting than live radio. Um, my guess is this is going to be very successful and simply because of the model and the kind of news that they're going to be bringing to audiences who are interested. I was really interested that essentially what they are doing, and it's smart on their part, they are adapting what they actually often do with their radio programs, like a morning edition or all things considered, where when you're listening to WBR in the morning, as I did this morning, um, they have their national stories, but then they always go over to the local and then the local tells the stories that they want to tell. So it's, I think, smart to shrink that, that down to a podcast format, but, but utilize what they knew already worked from a radio perspective. Exactly. And, and they, you know, these are, they have built in audiences, which is always a great place to start. Um, I think they're going to be probably seeing some of their old listeners come back now that it will be in this new, more on-demand platform. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine for them from a business angle, that's obviously great for, for continued growth, um, as well as just the the mission of delivering delivering smart news. Yeah, so let's just talk a little bit about the kind of uniqueness of the partnership here, right? I actually did listen to the first episode yesterday, um, which was of interest to me from um, the national story was actually about um, the outreach to Gen Z voters. So you know how I, mm -hmm. I love talking about young voters. Um, <laughs> but the local the local part of it was Paris Alston, who's a producer and reporter at, G at BUR, interviewing Paul Singer, who's a reporter for GBH, on a story that he had around state contracts and minority-owned businesses. Um, what are your thoughts about the fact that these are kind of two powerhouse local public newsrooms combining forces? I think it's smart. I also think it's a recognition of that they had a shared mission and something to gain by moving forward together. And rather than looking at each other as competition, they looked at each other as allies to better reach audiences. And we quite honestly, more of that in the world is, would not be a bad thing. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Particularly around the local news, because there is such a dearth of local news right now. And both BUR and GBH have done a great job 
um, becoming really important uh, places for local news that, you know, it's really good to see them kind of stepping into a void that needs to be filled. I think we are going to quickly realize that to that point that it, it was a void that we may not have via radio that we may not have fully realized was there um that they're going to fail i can only imagine this will be very successful and you know more power to them i agree um one last give thing. them whatever tips they might need um you know <laughs> one more we should let them know we're here <laughs> all right thanks Kayan. So, Cayenne, uh, Bob Woodward, the legendary reporter for the of uh, the Washington Post, uh, released excerpts uh, this week, including audio recordings of President Trump. Um, these are excerpts from his new book called Rage. And the audio recordings that he has, uh, the president admits in February that he knew that the coronavirus was more deadly than he was saying publicly. And then in March, he, he admits to downplaying the virus. Uh, do you have any thoughts in general on this kind of bombshell that came out yesterday, basically? I've had the same reaction I think a lot of people have had, which is, you know, why are we only hearing about this now? Um, he has a book coming out next week. Certainly all seems to be timely. Um, you know, and I there is a piece he which he has responded to in the last 24 hours. Um, there is an aspect of his response that I find understandable, which is he kind of wanted to vet this out a little bit and yeah. see how it played out. Um, I do think that to simply ignore the fact that this would drive up book sales is not just simply not something we can ignore. It does seem timed to that. I'm sure that's what it was. That is the business of selling books. Um, but had this come out too soon, it, it also would have been easier, I think, for the president to deflect. Um, so there was that part made sense to me that I think there was a piece of him that wanted to see how it played out. And if he really did rise to the occasion in any way, shape or form now that he hasn't. Um, we have almost 200,000 lives lost in this country. It better late than never. I, I don't know. <laughs> no, no you're, there's a real ethical debate going on. Um, and it was there was some discussion about this last week, too, with Mike Schmidt's book, who's an active kind of working journalist for The New York Times. I mean, the kind of interesting thing about Bob Woodward is he's now known more as someone who writes books than he is necessarily a reporter for The Post. But I think that there's a real, that that question is, I think, a real uh, going concern within the journalism world. And I'm, I'm actually happy to see it, but I agree. It's, um, I, I read the article, he did a, a, a interview with Margaret Sullivan, who's the ombudsman for the Post. And I, I was sort of where you are, that I understand the, the notion that, you know, can you trust what's coming out of, um, the White House, and um, he wanted to see what happened. But, you know, I think you're right to say that you can't really ignore the, the whole book sale part of it either. Yeah, and and this is a, we should all say, Bob Woodward is, is pretty revered and, and legendary um, yeah. within the profession. This isn't, you know, just anybody. 
so to think that you don't want to think that it was purely driven by book sales. I don't think any of us want to think that. Um, it does seem interesting, the timing. Yeah. However, I do agree with the idea that had he'd said it too soon, it could have very easily not been taken as seriously yeah. and very more quickly undone. Um, but he was quoted at one point. I think this is what has stuck stuck out and, and sort of annoyed me a little bit is that he wanted to make sure that he had them in context. Yeah. Um, well, right. it was just the two of you talking. <laughs> right. That was clear. I do think it was important that he had the audio clips um, because of this president's track record with just immediately calling a foul, anything that is critical of him um, and easily saying like that person didn't get my words right or having the audio clips was very powerful. Um, People who want to defend him will continue to say, you know, well, he did it because he didn't want to cause panic and all of those things. Um, but I would imagine that beyond, there were people that may have read the book or articles from the book and kind of dismissed it and just been like, yeah, that's probably not how it went down um, to have those clips to back it up. I would think there's another group that might now be pausing, um, having heard it directly from the president. Yeah, I think it's an important point because it, it is an open question. Um, whether or not this will actually influence people's thoughts about the elections, the election coming up. But I agree that it is a lot harder to dismiss it when you actually have the audio as opposed to just, a, you know, something that's written on the page. Yeah. Um, can I just make one more comment about this entire story, though, which is you and I, of course, both went through a journalism program. We actually went through the same journalism program, though, several years apart, uh, which is the University of, Mass- uh, the University of Massachusetts Journalism Program. Mm-hmm. In Amherst. Um, in Amherst, correct. How many times did you watch All the President's Men when you were at UMass? I know, I, I because you jogged my memory, I definitely watched it in at least one class. But I remember the first time I watched it, my dad showed me that movie when I said I was interested in journalism. So I think it's worth pointing out because I watched it. uh, So yes, I had seen it, I think prior to going to college, but then I'm not kidding. I was shown it in class no less than three times when I was at UMass. (laughs) I I think it is amazing that the president of the United States spoke to Bob Woodward on the record and allowed himself to be recorded given the fact that he is the co-author of all the president's men, co-authored all the articles that that led to President Nixon's uh, resignation. It's just an interesting choice, I think. And not once, but 18 times. I know. It's really... Um, you know, it's, it actually, it's, it's surprising, but it's also on the flip side of it. It's not, it's an, for, it's a, an element of arrogance to think, I'm going to talk to Bob Woodward and he's not going to do to me what he has done to others. Because we should point out that Bob Woodward has profiled many presidents um, and has been not always kind, no matter the party. That's absolutely right. I think that there is an element of 
the current president, um, that thought, I'm better than all of them. So I'm going to do these interviews and it'll be great. It'll be fantastic. It'll be the best thing you've ever read. <laughs> I, I think you are probably right. And I think we're going to see the fallout in particular over the next uh, several weeks. And it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And we have to remember, the book hasn't even come out yet. This is just his, the tip of the iceberg. So there's certainly more to come. I think you're absolutely right. Cayenne, thank you for being on today. Thank you. Dan Morris with Seven Letter, and I'm here today with Noelle Lambert and Famita Ayambeku of the Board to Run Foundation. Famita recently joined the foundation's board, and we're here today to talk to them both about the work of the foundation and what it's like to train for the Tokyo Paralympics. Welcome both Noelle and Famita. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, Noelle, let's start with you, um, which the Born to Run Foundation, which you founded a few years ago, announced recently that your training partner and friend, Amita Ayambeku, is joining your board. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Born to Run Foundation does? Yes. So the Born to Run Foundation specializes in donating specialized prosthetics to help younger adults and children uh, just if they want to live a fun and fulfilling life that they're able to, and we're able to donate those because personally I received two different prosthetics from two different foundations. It was very important to me to be able to give back and to spread awareness because a lot of people don't understand the cost of specialized prosthetics and how insurance companies won't cover them. So from the beginning, it was definitely something I was very passionate about and I'm very happy that we're able to, be able to give back and to be able to grow it as much as possible. And by specialized prosthetics, you mean things like running blades and waterproof prosthetics that allow young people in particular to continue to lead active lives. Yes. Yeah, so honestly, we don't really have a specific uh, type of prosthetic limiting people like only running blades. We're honestly open to everything. So we've done running blades, waterproof legs. We've actually done an artificial arm to help a yoga instructor um, go back to teaching our yoga classes. So we're definitely open for anything just so that they can live the lives that they want to live and they don't have to worry about being an amputee or not being able to do some of the things that usually are told people are told with disabilities that they're not able to do. So we want to show people that you are able to do whatever you pursue in any of your dreams. Sounds great. Um, so, Famita, can you talk a little bit about your journey? Um, how did you go from becoming an amputee at the age of 11 to becoming a Paralympian? Um, so, I had my accident when I was 11. And at the time, going through physical therapy and getting back to regular life, um, sports and all that type of stuff was not my main focus. Um, learning how to walk and just adjusting to day-to-day -day life was more um, of what I was focusing on. But when I turned 23, I got a running blade donated to me. And it's funny because in my college days, I had friends that used to run track and I thought it was just the silliest sport ever because people are just running around in circles. And um, ironically, I got a running blade donated to me when I was 23 and I put it on 
And I was like, oh my gosh, I absolutely love this. And um, I started running from there. Um, I started training with my coach, Sherman Hart, who's now me and Noel's coach, and um, trained with him for about six and a half months, and then went to trials and became the fastest female amputee in the United States. <laughs> that is amazing. And quite yeah. honestly, I think it's such a great story for anyone who... <laughs> doing something a little bit later in life like you don't need to have started at 10 to be a great athlete or something along those lines yeah an inspiration to many of us thank you thank you um so tell us a little bit like most people are not ever going to experience being at an olympics even as a spectator and certainly not as an athlete or a paralympic so tell us a little bit about what that experience in rio was like oh it was it was amazing and overwhelming. Um, like you said, most people will never get to experience that. And for me, that was never even the goal. So just being in that atmosphere was absolutely breathtaking. Um, but like I said, I had only been training for like six and a half months. So going from running in front of my coach and my family to running in a stadium full of people, it was definitely a lot. But um, overall, I think it definitely humbled me and will definitely have prepared me for Tokyo next year. So definitely looking forward to what that experience will be like because I don't think any one games is the same you know and especially with all of this corona stuff going on um the anticipation has just heightened up a lot so everybody was waiting for this year and now we all had to pump our brakes for another year so I definitely think Tokyo is going to be something special yeah and I guess had um had Tokyo gone forward in this year your situation would have been similar to noelle's because noelle you only started training for tokyo within the last year as well yeah so when i graduated college um and stopped playing lacrosse i transitioned over to track and field and i just signed myself up uh for uh an arizona track meet and that's where i reconnected with Bamita and i did really well there so that so that's when I um, was recognized by the head coaches. And then Famita brought me under her wing and introduced me to our head coach. So Sherman Hart. And ever since then, I mean, it's been it's been a blessing to have Famita by my side, to have uh, coach Coach Hart by my side. I mean, it's definitely been a great experience for me. And I'm actually very lucky that I have Famita right next to me. And I can talk <laughs> to her and ask her so many questions because... I mean, she, when she was telling me her story, I mean, she was going in alone. She did not know a lot of people. So Famita has introduced me to everybody. I mean, it's been amazing. And I'm just very, I'm very grateful for all the support that Famita has given me. Oh, so nice. <laughs> He's my That's older right. sister. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So the Tokyo Tokyo Paralympics were supposed to be happening basically right now, um, and obviously the pandemic changed things. What does the next 12 months look like for the both of you in terms of training for what will essentially be uh, next summer's Paralympics? Um, so every year there's like a cycle of training that we go through, and um, obviously leading up to Tokyo this year, we were kind of towards the end of our cycle. So we just have to reset. Um, we actually are taking this month off. I know coach told us to not run for two weeks, which is going to be really, really hard. I know, 
I don't know if you've been on the track, Noel, but I, I did a run yesterday. Yeah, I've been on the track a couple times this week. I feel like if yeah. I'm on the track, I'm just going to lose everything that I've gained through this. Yeah. Season. Well, we won't tell them. Yeah. <laughs> we'll keep that yeah so we're taking this month off and then we'll get back into our conditioning which is usually in the winter time and then um we'll get ready for some indoor season stuff i don't know if coach is going to drop us in a couple of races if there are any races um i think the goal is to try to compete at least once even if it's a mock race or anything because it's been what since November was the last time me and Noel were able to compete. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a lot of other countries that are able to be competing right now, which kind of sets us back a little bit. Um, so just staying healthy, staying conditioned and staying fit until it's time to gear up again is what training is looking like for us. Yeah, I mean, obviously with the pandemic and everything and having it being postponed, both Famita and I have been taking it kind of as a blessing. We can have a whole other year to train, whole other year to work on things that, I mean, personally, I needed a whole year. Famita, I think, would have been fine and would have killed it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but, please. Um, personally, yeah, I'm, personally, for me, having this extra year really is a blessing in disguise. So, I mean, our coach has been saying it to both of us. Uh, we, it's, it's actually good that we had this year because we're working on reaction times and different things in the block. So... It's definitely we're taking it as a positive, whereas I mean, I'm sure every single athlete is taking it that way. And so we're yeah. going to come back better than ever in 2021. Yep. Fine does, tune. Yep. <laughs> how does it work in terms of in the winter for you folks? Do you do you end up doing indoor training or are you out there in the snow and cold? This is, of course, the things that I think of like, oh, are you out there running in the, in the snow? <laughs> yeah. No, we have the um, we have an indoor track facility that our coach just so happens to be the director of. Yeah. So we definitely get to take advantage of that, and um, we'll we'll do some indoor competitions hopefully if there are any. And um, yeah, so we're inside for the most part, especially living in New England. We don't have I was much choice. Say, New England, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. So Noel, talk a little bit about what's next uh, next for the Born to Run Foundation. So we actually have our annual golf uh, tournament coming up on September 21st. And I'm so excited. At the Brook Meadow Country Club. So we actually have a, bit, uh, a big group of foursomes coming together, but obviously we're going to keep it as safe as possible with COVID. Um, and we're just going to do the golf outing where unfortunately we can't do the sit down buffet and every, anything afterwards. So we're just going to try to get creative and do different, fun little things and keeping everybody safe and hopefully we will be making our next donation within the next couple months and we will definitely uh so if you want to keep an eye on our social media follow us anywhere uh at the born to run foundation or if you want to follow us on our website www.thebornturunfoundation.org we're going to have some exciting things uh happening in in the fall so please please stay and uh keep along Yes, and people should also, if they know someone who they think may benefit, you're still taking applications. So, of course, they should go to the website and, and look and see um, if someone they know um, is aware. You know, make sure that people that they know are aware of what you guys are doing. Yes. Mm -hmm. You want to just reach out to myself or Framita. I mean, we're really good at helping people go through a difficult time um, and just having that support system and having, I mean, for me, it was definitely uh, amazing 
to have different people reaching out who have gone through similar situations as us. So if anybody is in need or just need somebody to talk to, we're definitely here. You can follow us on our social medias. It's just our full names, Noel Lambert and Famita Ayambeku. So you can reach out or you can just give us a follow and follow along our journey. So is there anything we missed? Uh, Famita, you want to tell everybody about the Rising Phoenix and how everybody should watch it? Oh. <laughs> Rising Phoenix is out on Netflix. It is a documentary about the Paralympics, giving you the history and just some good little insight about, you know, our lives as Paralympians and just quote unquote disabled ass athletes. Um, for me, I think the, the movie is really important because I think a lot of people think that we have these struggles and we're just like these superhumans, but I think it shows our human side and you know everybody has their bad days but you just got to keep pushing through so i think it's a very motivating and inspirational movie for everybody to just get some insight well thank you for letting us know that that's great <laughs> noelle lambert and famita ayambeku thank you for joining us on oa on air today thank you for having us thank you two minutes with Two, two minutes with Cayenne. Two minutes with Mom. You know the segment name. It's great to be with you. Everything, everything well? Everything's good. How are you? I'm doing fine. Let's change the focus a little bit this week. Instead of politics, how about books? What are you reading? Um, I'm currently reading Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, uh, which oh. is a lovely refresh from uh, all of the other political things and and leaderships it's always nice to hear from people that we came to love and adore um so well, i just that started back to politics <laughs> don't take us back to politics but i did i just started it uh last week i've had it for a while but i've mm -hmm. i finally um cracked it open and so far so good i hope to be done with it uh by this time next week i think that's great and it's been on the bestseller list for weeks on end Indicating yeah, that it really is great book. I've not read it. I've there's not read no it. arguing. Uh, I think so many people in America love for Michelle Obama. I think that's right. I also think that um, you know it brings us right back to politics, which was something we we were going to kind of skip over this week. But um, I, I, I think it's a worthwhile read because she's a very highly admired uh, person, not only a woman but a person globally. Mm -hmm. and I'm dying to hear what you think of the book after you finish it. Yeah. On the other hand, I'm reading, I'm reading a book called, called Demagogue. It's written by somebody who used to work uh, for me when I was Lieutenant Governor, Larry Tai. He's written any number of bestsellers. And this one is about Joe McCarthy in the 1940s and 50s, how he came to political being, how he was elected, what he did. And um, I think the reason the book is as, as good as it is, is because it's very reminiscent about some of the some of the tactics used by the current president of the United States by a demagogue back in the back in the in the communist scare days, the forties and fifties here in America, and how he took the world by storm, only to be proven, only to be proven that he was always factually not telling the truth, lying, skirting just to get his point of view out and grab a headline. Um, 
It's a fascinating book. It's a fascinating book. Larry Ty is a great author. And um, and we're going to have more with Larry because we're going to do a book party with him and my good friend, Bill Daly, um, who's the former chief of staff to Barack Obama. And he also liked the book that he, he said, I want to moderate that book party when you have it. And so we're going to, we're putting that together for some time over the next two or three. It, it, and I look forward to having it. You are an avid reader. You always, uh, I think you average about a book a week, if not more. Is that right? I try. I try. Uh, and it's always a history or a biography. Uh, it's always about, you know, a, a current event or a historical event. Um, yeah, and, I, and I'm just kind of fascinated by it. Um, I've always been a history buff and I've always loved government and politics, as you know. So anything around the real world is something I'm going to pick up and, 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 and enjoy. So what are some other, obviously, since March, uh, when things, when we all kind of started to hunker down at home a bit more than we all did before, what have been, I'm sure your reading increased, what have been some of your favorites in the last few months that you would recommend? Um, you know, it's the, uh, it's the Irish book. My favorite book of the year has been the, the Irish book. And I, and I don't remember, I don't remember, um, I don't remember the title, not or I remember the author, but I do remember the book. And it was about the, the troubles in Ireland and the relationship between the American slash Irish slash uh, English uh, prompting to bring peace in the north of Ireland and all the, all the turmoil uh, that involved, uh, involving even Boston College over the years. Um, it was written by a young man who was who was taken by the Irish uh, troubles and really put it to to words and I must say it was incredible. Um, it's my favorite book and I only wish to God I could remember the title and the name. Age <laughs> is taking me over here, but it will come to uh, you as soon as we finish recording. You know that. I know that. I know that. But anyway, um, you can tell us next week. So that's my favorite, and I can tell you next week, and I will tell you next week. I look forward to between now and next week. You know, we're going to sign off with what we always say at the same time in the program. We, uh, in, in spite of the pandemic and in spite of the horrible politics of the 2020, 2016 to 2020 period, we will have a brighter day. That I guarantee you. Thanks, Tom. Diane, it's always nice to talk to you. Thanks very much. All right. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.